0: Welcome back to LA Not So Confidential. I'm Dr. Shiloh and I'm here with Dr. Scott. Hey, Dr. Scott.
1: Hey, Dr. Shiloh and hey, listeners. How is everybody doing out there getting us on a weekly download? Wow. <laughs> right.
0: I know. I know. It's Here we are again and we're not going crazy yet. So that's a good thing.
1: <laughs> on the verge. Always on the verge, on the... but so far. <laughs>
0: Well, we are off and running from here because it's August, which means we get very, very busy because festival season is upon us. Yeah, Not music festival season, podcast festival season. <laughs> and we have a couple of professional conferences that we'll be going to, so it's just going to be wild from here on out. But we'll see you in Dallas the weekend of the 26th through the 28th. We're putting together a very exciting presentation with Dr. Amy and Dr. Megan of Women in Crime on the Sherry Papini case and the phenomenon of false victimization, which you and I love to chat about and then in september we'll have a booth at the savannah crime expo and there are a ton of great speakers already lined up for that for a really great day in a really great city i've never been there before i'm so excited to have our editor jason show us around because it's his hometown so that will be fun hopefully we can go on some like walking ghost tours and things
1: like that it's going to be a blast it's going to also be humid humid Every place we're going, (laughs) except for the Pacific Northwest, is like killer human.
0: Seriously, yeah. So that's the weekend of October 8th and 9th is the Pacific Northwest True Crime Festival. And we will be doing our presentation on incels. So to keep up with all of this, go to the live events tab on our website to get all of the details. That's la not Dash so dash confidential dot com and the link will be in our show notes. So. If you don't want to remember all those dashes, just click on it right now.
1: We probably should just at some point go ahead and get another website that doesn't have any of the dashes and have it forward to this one. I don't know. We'll get everybody's I, well, pinkies. Someone
0: already, <laughs> someone already has L.A. Not So Confidential because it's a blog of some oh, sort that right. probably hasn't been active forever. That's but. true.
1: The author is a huge fan of the movie L.A. Confidential, which is a great, great sense. movie. So latest episode recap. Dr. Shaho, how many nicknames can we give the Tender sonler?
0: I guess people will have to listen to find out. I guess. (laughs) Because it's a lot. Yeah.
1: Make it a drinking game. (laughs) Listen to episode 103 to hear about the history of online dating and our take on this nefarious con man catfisher tale that is refreshingly told from the victim's perspectives, which was pretty cool.
0: Yes. Love that for sure. All right. Today's episode, we are going... This is so weird because literally the two weeks leading up to us recording, Uh we've had... Two listeners write in about either this exact topic or other pregnancy-related psych and crime issues, asking us to talk about it or telling us about their own stories. And it's like we're on the same wavelength. I mean, I really kind of think our menstrual cycles are synced up <laughs> oh, here. Oh,
1: stop making me <laughs> ovulate with you.
0: <laughs> oh my gosh i know but it's, it's it is kind of strange so weird. It's
1: very synchronistic that you threw the idea yes. out two and a half weeks ago and within a day all of that came in it was very interesting how that happens so we're going to be covering certainly drilling down to use my overused term on one particular term pseudosiesis but also kind of branch out to sort of the venn diagram of over Overlapping pregnancy issues and conditions that can arise, and then how that leads into criminal activity in some of the most egregious cases, but also really causes a great deal of emotional and mental health distress for the people that are experiencing this. So, pseudosiesis is a condition in which the patient has all the signs and symptoms of pregnancy, except for the confirmation of the presence of a fetus. So, sit with that. All the symptoms of pregnancy except for the confirmation of the presence of a fetus. The root of the word because I love language is from Greek, sudus. Faults and caesis, meaning pregnancy. So in the case of pseudosiesis, aka phantom pregnancy, the individual can experience things like abdominal distension, enlargement of the breast, enhanced pigmentation in the skin, cessation of the menses, morning sickness, vomiting, lordotic posture on walking, sort of that thrusting your belly forward and sort of mm-hmm. moving waddling, the side, and the forth. waddling, yeah. <laughs> yeah. an inverted umbilicus increased appetite, mm. weight gain, and nipple discharge. Like it's, it's so wild. The, the body is amazing and frightening and what it can do when it shifts into the belief that it needs yes. to be ready to create life. Amazing.
0: Yes, it is. It is such interesting stuff. As far as trigger warnings go today, we're going to be talking about bodily functions, issues of reproduction, and some violent attacks resulting in death and extreme injuries to the victim's body. So just listen with care. And also, we want to offer a note for clarification here at the top. Much of the research on this particular phenomenon is three to four years old, if not older. And in all of the research, the pregnant individuals are referred to as women, which we now understand is not able to include the genders or identities of the individuals who have experienced pregnancy and or the phenomenon that we're going to be talking about. Therefore, you'll hear us deliberately using more inclusive language throughout the episode.
1: Thank you for that. I think that's really important to start having that as part of the conversation. Just as a a portent of things to come, let's talk about Zona. Zona is actually very famous 46-year-old female here in the United States, and she has become relatively media famous for her pregnancy. Her pregnancy is notable because it's been going on for now almost five years.
0: Oh, yes. Zona asserts that she has at least six fetuses in her uterus, despite hundreds of negative pregnancy tests and several medical professional provided sonograms.
1: She states that she can feel the fetus is moving and that she has heard their individual heartbeats on the wide array of home medical equipment that she has installed in her house.
0: Zona has no answer for the negative pregnancy tests that emerge from both blood and urine analyses, but assures medical professionals that the babies are in her back uterus, a uterus that is behind the one that the doctors are observing. So we'll talk more about Zona later.
1: Right. So look, as as I'm sure all of our listeners are aware, we're always willing to go there in depth. And with some of the more complex issues around mental health and behavioral health and mental wellness, although we're going to come back to her as well as some other examples of false pregnancy and related conditions, I want to start this off with a quote from psychiatrist and author Dr. Monica Starkman, the inability to bear a child or the frustration of trying again and again to conceive to no avail is one of the most trying experiences imaginable. The sensitivities involved are deeply connected to an individual's identity and self-esteem. Understandably, when conception is elusive or unsustainable, as with miscarriage, those affected wonder about the adequacy of their own body. They wonder about their identity as a woman or a man or even their worth as a person. They feel somehow damaged and defective as well as utterly lacking control over the present and the future. The results can be profound anxiety, despair, and grief, which can lead to depression, often severe.
0: Wow, that's very powerful. Psychiatrist Dr. Starkman is a faculty member at the University of Michigan Medical School Department of Psychiatry in Ann Arbor, Michigan, as well as a clinician, scientific researcher, and prolific author. Thankfully, her expertise is well regarded in the myriad of scientific literature from which we pulled, where she adeptly highlights the concerns and conditions of individuals with uteruses and reproduction. So let's turn to the demographics of this population of clients. It's fascinating that although we lack a great deal of research on the mechanics of this disorder, we do have stats on the reported rates of pseudosiaesis, at least in the United States.
1: So we know that cases have declined significantly in the last century, and we got research going back to the 1940s where there was at least one occurrence for approximately every 250 pregnancies. Now, the rate of reports has dropped between one and six incidences for every 22,000 births here in the U.S. Approximately one out of six false pregnancies is a mistaken interpretation of other medical issues, such as gallstones, abdominal tumors, hyperprolactinemia, constipation, tubal cysts, and even esophageal achalasia.
0: I'm so glad you had all of those things to say and I didn't have to pronounce. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the the average age of the affected individual is 33 years old, but there have been cases reported for the patients as young as six and a half Mm. and as old as 79. So at least, if not more, Then two-thirds of patients who experience pseudosiesis are married, and about one-third have been pregnant at least once. Here's a doozy of a stat. Patients who have engaged in incest, whether voluntarily or coerced, appear to be at greater risk for developing pseudosiesis.
1: Now that... Is fascinating. And I wish that we could have found more specific research on that as well, because that certainly seems like really wrapped up in some mental health issues, right?
0: Yeah, that opened a door that I was like, oh my gosh, I need to know more. However, we don't have that. And the vast majority of pregnancies can be confirmed or ruled out by a simple abdominal exam. And this is due to the medical professionals' clear ability to feel the literally unmistakable bone structure of the skull. and/or through a sonogram image, which provides a view of the unique and rapid fetal heartbeat, which is generally at 120 beats per minute, which is in contrast to the mother's 70 to 80 beats per minute through the sonogram image, basically. So there's a lot of very simple ways that a doctor just confirms that a woman is actually pregnant. So that brings all of this into perspective because we can very quickly rule in or out if a woman is pregnant, but there are some people who are convinced and or their bodies are convincing them otherwise, which leads us today.
1: Right. We've got several historical examples that are used repeatedly throughout research that we saw for this episode. When we look at the history of false pregnancy the terminology. And the understanding has definitely evolved over time. So going back as far as the known father of medicine, Hippocrates, who was a Greek physician from the classical Hellenic period, he's considered to be one of the most significant individuals in the history of medicine. And in his writings, he reported at least a dozen cases of women who had imagined themselves to be pregnant.
0: Right. And then we have Mary Tudor, daughter of King Henry VIII, an eventual legendary Queen of England. She experienced symptoms of pregnancy lasting nine months, twice with each pregnancy terminating in an episode of false labor. Again, while this particular example is shrouded in history, she's believed to have had pseudosiesis, given that she had very loud and violent reactions to the realization that she had not produced an air, has led many researchers to surmise that her nickname, Bloody Mary, emerges from her
1: behaviors. I had never heard that before. That's fascinating. Yeah. So French obstetrician Francois Marisot in the late 17th century asserted that patients with enlarged abdomens who claimed pregnancy were caused by bad air. Okay, so remember, like Southern
0: California smog. Uh, like...
1: <laughs> you know, going back to the 17th century with medicine, pretty much it's an open field. Like, oh, mm. you've got ghosts in your blood. Let's bleed you. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah, so exactly. over time, doctors and other medical professionals eventually started to acknowledge that there were likely other factors than just gas or bad air. More and more, doctors began to explore the emergence of factors in both the mind and the body, and earlier than we would have expected.
0: Mm -hmm. A physician named Joshua Whittington Underhill observed in 1877 that certain physically experience symptoms were able to convince a patient of the pregnancy. And he went on to assert that the quote-unquote disordered brain can convince the patient of fetal movements when they might be just ordinary abdominal pains or bowel movements.
1: So going even deeper into the exploration of root causes, doctors began to examine the role of emotions in false pregnancy or pseudosiesis. This is significant given the time. The idea that pseudosiesis could result from a woman's perception of herself. Very forward thinking considering the day and the age. Now, 20th century doctors and midwives would also report that trauma or strong emotions could have the effect of ceasing the patient's milk supply. So already they've been establishing that emotions and environmental factors may very well affect a woman's body.
0: Yeah, I see that they're starting to make that link between psychological or emotional and how that's playing off the body. But also I'm getting flavors of like, Well, just what is wrong with her emotionally? Because maybe we can't even explain this medically yet. Well, it's a disordered brain.
1: Well, she's hysterical. It means her womb is just jumping all over. Like, you know, when they first invent, when locomotives really like were fully invented and rail started springing up all over Europe, there were people that believed that women could not possibly travel faster than 30 miles an hour or their... Their oh, uteruses would fly out of their bodies. So, oh
0: my God, they would fly out of our bodies, not just like body. explode. Wow. Yeah. Cause that fucking makes sense. <laughs> oh my God. I guess that's why they had
1: so many corsets is like just kind of tighten lock that thing up. in there, lock it up,
0: <laughs> strap it down. <laughs> Cause we might go. 30 miles an hour, dear God. (laughs) Well, and then there was an investigator in the early 20th century that observed that strong emotions can dry a woman's milk supply and went even further to assert that the opposite was true, that strong emotions could start milk production in those who were not pregnant. But even while there was movement to examine this phenomenon, there were many physicians that questioned the legitimacy of pseudocyesis as a condition at
1: all. So getting into the science and diagnosis of this peculiar your diagnosis, we're going to start with somatoform disorder. We talked about it in previous episodes briefly, but for this one particular, it, it is really adept at explaining this phenomenon. Pseudosiasis falls under somatoform disorder in the DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. Somatoform disorder is any mental disorder that exhibits physical symptoms that appear to be an illness or a possible injury. However, the experience cannot be fully explained as a recognized legitimate medical condition. A physician will also want to rule out or eliminate the possibility of substance use, very important, whether that use is current or historical, or that the experience can't be caused by another mental disorder. Some examples of somatoform disorder include hypochondriasis, body dysmorphia, pain disorder, and what we call conversion disorder.
0: Yeah, and there's a ton of specifics even under those categories that you gave us. Yes. Individuals that are diagnosed with a somatic symptom disorder have either medical tests that come back as normal or the test results do not appear to have any connection to the symptoms that they're experiencing. In this disorder, there's also an absence of history or physical examination that indicates the presence of a known medical condition that could cause these symptoms. And a significant factor here in diagnosis is that the individual is excessively worried about their symptoms. So in addition, this level of worry must be out of proportion to the alleged severity of the physical complaints. So it's really about the distress that it causes the patient. Mm -hmm. Like you and I have talked about so many other types of psychological disorders where it doesn't, you know, if if someone was experiencing those things and they were fine with them, then they probably wouldn't come to the attention of needing any clinical services. It's when they are in distress about them that we then label it a disorder. Often that's the very final criteria because we don't want to label everyone disorder just because they have a set of symptoms. It has to be very bothersome and distressful to them. So aside from that, the diagnosis requires that the subject is having these reoccurring somatic complaints for at least six
1: months. So symptoms begin appearing during adolescence, and patients are generally diagnosed before the age of 30. Symptoms are generally vague, but also similar to those of other illnesses, and they can last for years, and they can also include depression and anxiety. And this phenomenon can occur across cultures and gender.
0: Yes. So let's just pause for a moment and talk about what is not pseudosiasis. We just want to distinguish a couple of of things, even though we're going to talk about these things, but we want to sort of delineate here. So pseudosiasis is not knowingly faking a pregnancy and nor is it the delusion of pregnancy. A very important factor is that somatic disorders are not the result of malingering, which you and I have talked about before, where you're fabricating and exaggerating symptoms for some sort of secondary gain. And it's not affecting disorder, which is deliberately producing faking or exaggerating symptoms for some benefit like we've talked about with Munchausen syndrome. And then delusions of pregnancy in a psychotic disorder such as schizophrenia. It's very, very rare and often related to a history of Dual diagnoses, a couple of things going on for that person.
1: It's also not an unknown or unexpected or what they call cryptic, not cryptoid pregnancy. Which
0: <laughs> that's terrifying. And that's
1: terrifying because, like, when I first saw weight these people are claiming that they have cryptic pregnancies. And I thought, cryptoid, which is a whole I mean, that's right up my alley. It's like, oh my god, I got I'm
0: pregnant with bigfoot. I'm having Bigfoot's
1: baby. I'm having an alien baby, but yeah, it's not that that would be a show on the learning channel.
0: (laughs) Okay. So you mean like the show, I didn't know I was pregnant. So that's, that's the opposite of what we're talking about here. People didn't know they were pregnant and it's something else. I thought I had a
1: stomach ache and now I just dropped a baby.
0: Yeah. I just had to poop really bad. Oh
1: my God. It's hard (laughs) to believe. So, an example, a 44-year-old woman goes to the hospital thinking that she has a hernia. No, that's what that seems to be. With that show, I didn't know I was pregnant. That was it over and over again, like just sort of being in the car. And even so, I mean, to give some flexibility to some of those episodes, they did have pictures where some of the younger women weren't showing at all, like crazy not showing. And then some women who were larger, it was really hard because they had always been somewhat large. So, that part I do want to show some understanding and compassion for
0: sure and i think a lot of the time i mean we didn't venture into this area even though we're doing this little sidebar but you know there seemed to be a real lack of sexual education of yes. like how this happens what to expect and then they're just you know denial takes over if, if you don't even know what you're experiencing you're writing it off so
1: yeah So the biggest concern in situations like that seems to be like, oh my God, you went through nine months with no prenatal Uh, care. Yeah. But for the most part, it seems like they generally turn out okay. But anyway, back to our main theme, we're going to be talking about aspects of the predominant drivers in this phenomenon that are certainly driven by biological experiences. But we have to give some time to delusional disorder, which we have touched on in previous episodes. I want to jump back to it because while the disorder is rare, we have found some examples that have overlaps in this episode. Delusional disorder is a challenging condition to treat. In my experience working in a co-responder model and ongoing consultation with psychiatrists who work at the Veterans Administration Hospital system, I've learned that fixed delusions are one of the hardest conditions to contain, to treat, or even offer support to those that are challenged by the disorder.
0: Right, because with these individuals, they rarely admit that their beliefs are problematic Outside of the way that they're feeling. And that's often like they're victimized. And not all people with delusional disorder do think they're being victimized, such as the examples that we're exploring for today's episode. But they just, it's more about the anxiety and the depression and the symptoms that are coming along with whatever the delusional belief is. Patients are rarely even willing to call their beliefs delusions and they rarely seek treatment. So unless they're really pushed there by a loved one, or if there's problems in the workplace that lead them there, they might not even make it in front of a clinician. So we've talked extensively in our episodes on folia a the madness of two, capgrass syndrome, gang stalking. Highly recommend you go back and delve into those episodes if you have not. I actually have been making playlists on my Spotify account. So I've taken all the delusional disorder episodes and put them on a playlist. Oh, cool. <laughs> I've, I've put all the vintage episodes, put those on a playlist. The ones that we've done, like several on a uh, related topic. If you just want to look for Dr. Shiloh on Spotify, I have playlists on there.
1: Oh, cool. Thank you for doing that. Yeah. So our first legit research example is that we found a published case on a 55-year-old housewife who was presented with the first episode of psychosis at age 27 after the death of her only son in an accident. Now, she had experienced other psychotic symptoms such as being really suspicious or paranoid about the people around her, including family members. She had much significantly decreased interaction with her family members. She was talking to herself or responding to internal stimuli. Mm -hmm. Family members noted that she would mutter, she would laugh and cry without reason. And then she had a real significant decreased need for sleep and her appetite was poor. And then emerging out of all this, this belief that she was pregnant. So her case presents a well-organized delusion of pregnancy. She would explain that the flatness of her abdomen was because it had also stayed flat during her earlier pregnancies. And all that she needed was the experience of pain in her abdomen to prove to herself that she was in labor and she was convinced that she could feel movements of the fetus. So in cases like this, the experience of delusions can be understood to be an adaptive process and a reaction to high levels of stress, in this case, like unresolved and very complex feelings of grief. For the client, it can be a really misguided outlet for a number of emotional and psychological issues. The researchers went so far as to call the experience, quote, wish fulfillment, unquote. And here's a quote from that study. The patient wants a son and wants to be reunited with him at any cost, and the only apparent means of doing so is through giving birth to a child whether or not she's actually able to conceive or have a child. So another researcher in Germany also supposes that the false pregnancy could emerge from the use of what we call magical thinking, which is a psychological defense, a way to avoid being abandoned and having the full brunt of their fear of being helpless.
0: Very sad situation. So sad. I mean, for her, for the rest of the family that's dealing with the grief, I mean, this is just unbelievably tragic. We have another research example. And in one of the papers that was available, a psychiatrist claims that cases of pseudosiasis occur in the presence of either majorly depressive disordered individuals or somebody with a psychotic disorder with a limited number that occur also during a manic episode of bipolar. So right here in published literature, we're finding a contradiction... And how this disorder is even classified because we were trying to make sort of this strict classification at the top that it was just sort of this medical phenomenon with a piece of psychological flavors to it. However, it's just not that direct.
1: It doesn't seem like it's
0: not it's not, and it's it's overlapping with some of these other mood disorders and perhaps psychotic disorders. So in this paper, the researcher gives an example of a 30-year-old woman with a historical diagnosis of bipolar disorder and pseudosiasis that occurs specifically within a manic episode with clear psychotic features. In one case, emergency services found the patient naked. In the woods outside a suburban area, exhibiting symptoms of psychosis. The patient claimed that her abdomen had increased and that she felt fetal movement and that her nipples were discharging fluid. The patient fully believed that she was pregnant in spite of negative pregnancy tests on multiple occasions. It was also revealed that she had a history of post traumatic stress disorder as well as bipolar disorder. This poor baby, I mean, and I mean the woman, like this is a lot that she's dealing with. That's a lot. The patient was given a full medical evaluation and none of her claims were found to be true. Due to her being extremely overweight, she had a visibly non-distended abdomen and non-palpable uterus. There was no breast tenderness or enlargement found, nor was there fluid or drainage. And she was given a shot of olanzapine, which is generic the generic name for Zyprexa, a strong and very effective antipsychotic to address agitation during this medical evaluation that they were giving her. And despite being monitored for a long time, and stabilized back on her previous antipsychotic regimen. She was later committed involuntarily and transferred to a long-term psychiatric facility. So this is a woman with long-withstanding problems of psychiatric issues.
1: Yes, thank you for saying that. We could do another playlist on involuntary hospitalizations at this point (sighs) that include that. You really have to be either significantly behaviorally impaired or, or what we call gravely disabled, just not able to care for yourself and unresponsive to what medication So that's another really, really sad example. In the Indian Journal of Psychology, their research shows that approximately one quarter of the patients who develop a delusion of pregnancy were over the age of 50. They're thinking that it's possibly related to menopause onset or Symptoms that emerge out of even perimenopause, which can be very confusing, because the the hormones are doing their sort of last gas drop through the body, right
0: <laughs> before they dry up. <laughs> well,
1: it's rough. Like it's rough on it's rough it on is. a woman's body. It's tough that hormonal shift into imbalance certainly can be understood to aggravate psychological distress and increase the risk of clinically significant psychiatric difficulties that go with all those changes in women's bodies, mm-hmm. like we were saying. The Indian research denied that all experiences of pseudopregnancy were automatically indicative of mental illness, though, which I thought was a really great point to make. Yeah, so they're making sure that they carve out that it could be just a misinterpretation and then, you know, it's not always saying that the person is fully delusional. They did conclude, however, with the following statement. Delusion of pregnancy was encountered in a variety of psychiatric disorders, including schizophrenia, other psychotic disorders, mood disorders, and organic brain disorder. This suggests that the phenomenon is nosologically nonspecific, and attempts should be made to look for other symptoms and see whether syndromal criteria for a psychiatric disorder have been met. Basically, like a very down-and-dirty, direct way of saying... Look at every single possible factor that could be there, medical or psychiatric. Love that. That's very comprehensive.
0: Agree. Some quick side notes of other terms that are loosely related under this umbrella of pregnancy related psych disorders pseudo pregnancy, that term itself is generally reserved for false pregnancies in mammalian animals other than humans, of which there are many cases, most notably cats and dogs, because of their cohabitation with humans. I think this is probably witnessed more often, but it's also observed in pigs, rats, mice, among other mammals. So we just call it false pregnancy or pseudosiasis for humans pregnancy, I guess, is kind of how they delineate it for other types of mammals. Kuvad syndrome, also called sympathetic pregnancy, or in the UK, sometimes they call it phantom pregnancy, is a condition in which a man experiences some of the same symptoms and behaviors of his expecting partner. These most often include minor weight gain, altered hormone levels, morning nausea, and disturb sleep patterns. And in more extreme cases, they can include labor pains, postpartum depression, and nosebleeds. The labor pain symptom itself is commonly known as sympathy pains. That's I can tell you my husband had none of this.
1: <laughs> <laughs> or he hit it really well. He was, was just, just watching... such a trooper.
0: I was just watching a clip of Jimmy Kimmel and he's interviewing Mila Kunis and he's like, oh, my wife and I are expecting two. And she's like, really? You and your wife are pregnant? And he's like, well, yeah, my wife and I are pregnant. And she's like, really both of you? Because I'm pretty sure I'm the only one experiencing pregnancy in my relationship. <laughs> it's hilarious.
1: <laughs> it's funny. In doing all this research too, there was a, another article that Popped up and I was like, "No, I will not go down this rabbit hole." But it was seriously, it was a photo of an ancient, ancient rock carving that was painted, and it was a depiction of you know women used to give birth in a much more healthy position and there would be birthing pits like you would squat they show i think they had it in game of thrones and a couple of other it
0: was the original squatty potty
1: exactly but the potty (laughs) is the baby but in one of them there was a diagram of the woman you know suspended over the birthing pit and above her is the father of the child and she has ropes that are attached to his testicles so that when she's in pain she yanks on his balls so that he feels as much pain as she does.
0: It's a shared experience. We got here together. We're going to go through the whole thing. Clearly,
1: (laughs) clearly a shared experience. Wow. So going back and building on Dr. Starkman's statements from a couple of minutes ago, sometimes a person's unhealthy psychological defense mechanisms can emerge to protect them from not being able to conceive. And for those that have dreamed of having children or even really based a large part of their identity on the idea of being a parent, that pain, that psychological pain is so severe and so unbearable that the false pregnancy emerges out of it. A false pregnancy can allow them to have a small window of hope. It's possible to believe that you're pregnant, but quickly have a negative pregnancy test rule out that possibility. Pseudocidesis or false pregnancy is different. People who experience this develop a rigid belief that they are pregnant and the pregnancy tests make no difference And in many cases, the experience lasting much longer than human gestation, that's even possible. And it will have no effect on their belief, despite how much evidence is given to them to the opposite. So while pseudosiasis is not common, thankfully it's not common, it is a real concern and it would benefit from more public awareness
0: yeah, these stories we've covered so far are really heartbreaking stories of hope and loss, I think. And of course, in some cases, some extreme mental illness, it seems. But let's turn to when some of these issues around intentionally faking pregnancies become harmful, inappropriate, and sometimes even criminal. So through some personal correspondence and some quick internet research that I've I've done, there are a ton of stories of friends either mirroring other friends' pregnancies or lying online to communities about being pregnant And it really seems that that is feeding a need for either just attention in general or trying to feel more attached to their friend or share in the attention when they have a friend who's pregnant, and then they also say that they're pregnant. So it's a really interesting phenomenon.
1: I like that you pulled that out. I think it's interesting because the more I think about it, it's not necessarily like a full-blown personality disorder such as histrionic or what we would assume to be this crazed need for validation or attention. It very well could be a little bit of those, absolutely, but it could also be, this is the way I am connecting with my friend, even to the point where they can have some less well-informed decisions made in that process, including maybe consciously or unconsciously portraying themselves as pregnant. Because there is, there's a market online for baby bumps, for graduated baby bumps. There's a market online where you can buy fake sonogram results and fake urine. I mean, not it's real urine. It's like real pregnant urine. Wow. Gross and gross too. Like I wish
0: I'd known about that so I could have made more money when I was pregnant.
1: (laughs) Biohazard. So yeah, there are a lot of stories of bizarre incidents like that of women faking pregnancies for for one reason or another. I think that the span of experiences is only matched by the motivations. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not all driven by the need to procreate or feel that identity, but it can have other drives pushing this delusion or pushing this experience along. One that came up in the research was a woman from Pennsylvania who discovered that her friend and her husband had faked a pregnancy, birth, and death of their infant in 2020.
0: Yeah, it's pretty endless. Like if you start poking around online, there's so many articles written. And I don't know if this is just on the forefront of my mind because of our upcoming presentation on false victimization. And, you know, faking that you're a victim of a crime. But I really feel like there's some strong correlation here for these scenarios. So if you guys remember our episode 17 was on falsifying crimes and personality disorders, the goal or the need that that individual is trying to meet is usually attention. Or a benefit, like establishing an alibi or avoiding some sort of worse consequence to behavior they've already engaged in. Monetary benefits, which some of these cases I was reading about, definitely like they've started GoFundMes and asking friends for money to help pitch in for baby gifts and all that sort of stuff. Or sometimes they really are being victimized, but they go above and beyond to stage or embellish the crime if they feel like their initial victimization wasn't addressed appropriately. So I don't know exactly how that fits in here, but I feel like there are flavors of this, especially when we talk about attention being a motivation.
1: As much as I I can't say that my feelings about Dr. Phil are ambivalent because they definitely fall to the side of a great deal of frustration with the things that that I don't feel like he handles very well. But I have to put it in the context of it's not about him being a former, psychologist. It's about money. It's it's a media. It's entertainment or it's infotainment. And it makes a lot of money and it's an industry and it's chugging along. So I have to sort of adjust my understanding. But that being said, he does have some fascinating cases on and I don't think that it's always appropriate to have the level of people with challenging mental illnesses put on public display in the way that he and his producers do. But one of them was a young woman. She ended up being not cooperative at all. Her parents had brought her in and she was catfishing couples all over the country. She was mm-hmm. catfishing them with fake pregnancies and setting up adoptions. And there wasn't always a lot of money being exchanged at all. It wasn't like she was doing this as a grift to make money, but because it fulfilled some need for her and you know, on one hand, they had people on stage, like three couples, and I think a couple of other people in the audience that had all been set up by her. And they were devastated. They were devastated because this woman had been sending them sonograms and all these medical results. And it turned out the woman was really mentally ill and likely Mm -hmm. because she's not given any identifying information and they blur her face. But what I would say is probably a pretty severe case of border polar. So somebody with bipolar disorder and very significant borderline personality disorder as well, just from the way she was communicating and sort of feigning that she mm. couldn't maintain her mood, that she couldn't maintain communication when clearly she's able to carry off this grift on a number of people. She's very computer savvy, but she wanted to present as lower functioning. But it was really, I mean, I Jeez. felt badly for her because she's clearly very ill and you just felt absolutely devastated for the parents yes. that had been yes. told they were going to get a child and they, they couldn't. Right. So the key point of that episode 17, falsifying Crimes and Personality Disorders, is that the research shows that those who faked being the victims of crimes had some overlap with various cluster B personality disorders like histrionic disorder or borderline personality disorder. Right. So now we look at the other sort of overlap is women who steal infants, which is like a whole other level of true crime. Mm-hmm. It's its own thing. I mean, somebody could start probably their own specific podcast just on this oh, yeah. phenomenon, really. Because it
0: doesn't exist already.
1: Oh, yeah, seriously, it's got to be <laughs> it's probably already there. So we know that the desperation of wanting to have a child can go beyond pretending to be pregnant or your body telling you that you're expecting when you're not and convincing you even. The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children analyzed the perpetrators in 325 cases of infant abduction in the past five decades. Here's what came up in the research. Nearly all are female abductors. Many abductors use similar tactics to steal babies, the most common being dressing as a nurse, and they may also visit hospital nurseries while they're planning their abduction to ask questions about the procedures, case the layout of the building, case the layout of the maternity floor, and they might even become familiar with the hospital staff and may be friendly to the victim's parents. How terrifying!
0: I know. Literally, just this weekend, this happened in Riverside. A woman was arrested, dressed as a nurse in a major hospital, out there trying to steal a baby. Wow! So we we hear about this a lot, unfortunately. So Nick Mick's research also showed that many women who steal babies do so. They looked at their motivations basically, and they said they do so in a desperate attempt to keep a boyfriend or a husband that they fear mm. may leave them if they don't have a child to bind them together. They also found that majority of them are childbearing age and may also have other children at home, as well as a good amount of them have also pretended to be pregnant in the past. They had a certain percentage of their group that they studied that had recently lost a baby due to a miscarriage, or there were some that suffered from medical conditions that prevent them from becoming pregnant pregnant altogether. So at least they looked into the background and tried to profile these women a little bit. And it wasn't necessarily an academic publication, but it was really the only thing that looked at similarities in women who abduct infants specifically. Well,
1: Um, that seems to lead right into the next category, which is murder to steal an infant.
0: Yeah. So uh, the desire to procreate, like we said, or to have a child runs so strong in some individuals that they'll go to criminal lengths, but also far beyond societal norms or even beyond walking into a hospital and just stealing a child.
1: That's the part that gets me is that these couple of examples that we give is that you're willing to take someone else's life in the most brutal way in order to have this infant. I I mean, it, it's mind-boggling.
0: It is. So here's a case we're going to talk about. On December 16, 2004, Lisa Montgomery drove four hours from her Melbourne, Kansas home to the northwest Missouri town of Skidmore. She had told Bobby Joe Stinnett that she wanted to adopt a rat terrier puppy. And Stinnett, age 23, was a professional dog breeder. Within minutes of arriving at Stinnett's home, Lisa Montgomery strangled Bobby Joe Stinnett with a rope, then performed What she thought would be a cesarean procedure, basically pulling the fetus from the victim's dying body and then fleeing with the baby.
1: Horribly, the discovery was made by Lisa's mother, Becky Harper. She came into the residence, discovered her daughter's body and called emergency services in horror and distraughtly stated, it's like she exploded. Oh. Thankfully, Montgomery was arrested the next day after attempting to present the premature-born infant as her own child that she had already named Victoria Joe. Multiple tips had been called in following the enormous Amber Alert that went out, and the tips came in fast and hard because Montgomery was known to have a significant history of faking pregnancies throughout her life. Now, suddenly, she had a baby. Suspicions were immediately stoked.
0: She was arrested immediately, and more of the story came out during the trial. The DA asserted that Montgomery was motivated by a desire to get custody of two of her four children from her ex-husband, an ex that knew that Montgomery had undergone a tubal ligation. For some reason, which I'm still not clear on, Montgomery assumed that a real pregnancy and a real child would improve her chances. As she herself was a breeder of rat terriers, she developed her plan around her acquaintance from dog shows, Bobby Joe Stinnett. Wow. I mean, we we could have included this one on our dog show episode, probably. Yeah, Because this seriously. is just wild that they knew each other through this connection. And it led to this.
1: That's yeah, there's a lot of planning that went into this, like seriously, a lot of planning. And clearly, Mm -hmm. as it came out in that research, she had been pulling off or attempting to pull off fake pregnancies for quite a while. But again, it goes right along with the bit of statistics we referred to earlier, is that the majority of the people doing this already have children. Interesting. So She asserted that she was a victim of chronic and severe sexual abuse throughout her childhood that was perpetrated on her by her biological father. And in earlier family divorce proceedings, her dad was videotaped in an interview admitting to physical abuse. He did not admit to sexual abuse, but he did admit to physical abuse. And it's not shown in our research whether or not at that previous trial or that previous divorce hearing, whether or not sexual abuse had been alleged upon him. Mm -hmm. So not really clear on that from the extent literature we pulled from. Montgomery's mother asserted that she had never filed a police report because the father threatened her and the lives of her children. So Um, mom was saying, look, I did what I could do. I couldn't file these things. This is what she grew up with, that we all grew up in a pretty, pretty bad situation.
0: Again, just very sad all around. And to top that off, Montgomery was executed by lethal injection on January 13th, 2021 at the United States Penitentiary in Terre Haute, Indiana. In response to the request for any last words, Montgomery simply responded. No.
1: And unfortunately, it's not the only time that this has happened, as we were said earlier. In May of 2021, Texarkana updated an indictment against Taylor Parking. She's an East Texas woman accused of killing New Boston mother Reagan Simmons Hancock and then removing the child from Reagan's womb. In the proceedings, Parker admitted to pretending to be pregnant in order to later claim the baby as her own after the murder and removal took place.
0: And then if we go back to 2000, 39-year-old Michelle Bika kidnapped 23-year-old Teresa Andrews, who was nine months pregnant. The two women had met on Facebook in a mother's forum and formed a relationship. After the kidnapping of Andrews, Bika then murdered her and removed her unborn baby son by a crude C-section and attempted to cover her tracks by burying Andrews' body in her garage. Although Bika even tried to present the infant as her own child, she ended up taking her own life several days later as she realized that police had uncovered evidence of her crime. Mm. These are brutal. So let's get back to Zona that we talked about at the top.
1: It's a little bit lighter. It, Still tragic, but a little little bit lighter than these creepy fiction murders, which is just brutal to think about.
0: So as you mentioned, of course, there's no getting away from Dr. Phil on a subject like this one. One of the show's most famous guests is Zona, who at the time of her initial airing claimed to have been pregnant for three years. Zona and her peers that she has connected with through social media all share the belief that their gestational period is significantly different from a standard pregnancy in that theirs can last for years. Hmm. So we have some people with the same beliefs connecting online, which we see over and over again. Another (laughs) playlist. Yeah, fueling each other with their distorted thinking. Zona has claimed that she is 1,000% sure that she was over three years pregnant with multiple children simultaneously despite the fact that she obtained a tubal ligation at age 20. She believes that it is possible that the pregnancy could go on for years and explained that the reason that the sonogram does not pick up her fetuses is because, remember, they're in her back uterus, not her front front uterus. No. Oh, God, I cannot imagine having two uteruses. <laughs> what do
1: y'all keep back there in that back uterus? I...
0: Oh, you know, like Starbucks cards.
1: <laughs> and... <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't know. Chapstick, just, you know, because you Chap- oh, I know you all need chapstick.
0: Always have to have chapstick.
1: I, so examples like this are easy targets for humor. And Talk I would say that, you know, her presentation fits pretty well with what I was talking about earlier, which I feel is exploitative daytime television. You know, it's easy to become so incredulous at these stories that we have sort of an ab reaction of laughter or disbelief, sort of funeral giggles in a way. You know, in this case, Zona went on to tell Dr. Phil that her pregnancy could go on for many more years. And she also said, I am sick and tired of being pregnant. I just want them out. I am done with this. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done with pregnancy. I don't want it anymore. So, She consistently denies the expert opinions of medical professionals and they have come on. She has seen many, many doctors and her response is always, well, it's an opinion. So it's the medical opinion with the people who have the medical degree and the device is telling you that it's not there, but then you're calling it an opinion. Again, going back to that, that presence of delusional belief that is only going to go down one path. And if you try and deny that reality, they're going to weave your denial into you being part of the conspiracy or being part of someone trying to keep her from having her babies.
0: Yeah, despite the consistent contradiction for many medical professionals These women identify their experiences as, again, cryptic pregnancy, using a definition that is wildly different from the correct medical usage. And these women believe that they can feel their baby kick and move and reach out to support each other through online groups, such as one called the Gilmore Foundation.
1: So so the Gilmore Foundation website defines cryptic pregnancy as a pregnancy where there is no detectable HCG in the mother's system due to a hormonal imbalance, resulting in an extreme long gestation period that is typically three to five years. Both urine and blood pregnancy tests will be negative during a cryptic pregnancy. If the mother has a uterine abnormality, her ultrasounds will also be negative. Due to the nature of cryptic pregnancy, many women do not realize they are pregnant until delivery, but many are very aware that they are indeed pregnant. So that's a bunch of gobbledygook.
0: Yeah, I... If a researcher could do a longitudinal study, just they could convince these women to let them sort of follow them throughout their experience. Right. Like, does this last indefinitely? I mean, how long do they go on believing this? That five-year period hits and then what? I
1: don't know. I mean, like, do they age out of it? Or do they they have an experience that then is sort of a miscarriage? Or it'd be very interesting, especially when you got, Zona is not the only one that's been on Doctor Phil experiencing this either. There's been a a host of them, and clearly, if there's a website set up to it, but again, saying that's just gobbledygook because what they are absolutely not talking about is the idea that a fetus or an embryo would stay in sort of a static, non-growing state for that long. Mm -hmm. That like no animals do that. I mean, well, no, I I, I'm not going to say that because I think that there are some animals that have incredibly long just a period but those are usually not mammals
0: and again your challenge could just be explained by them of the baby just or the fetus just grows slower it's not like they're giving birth to a five-year-old you know i'm i'm sure it's it it just again like every challenge is explained away by the delusion
1: right by the delusion yeah so sad
0: It is. So I think we could bookend this episode just by talking about treatment. And again, it's tough when we talk about treatment with individuals who are experiencing the delusional side of it. But referring back to Dr. Starkman's research, she asserts that pseudosiasis emerges from the crucible of loss created by a miscarriage or the absence of fertility, or loss of a pregnancy. High emotional experiences, such as envy, anger, deprivation, can come out of the loss of a legitimate pregnancy, while false pregnancy can mitigate these overwhelming emotions. Mm. So this is what a clinician should be paying attention to and know that what, who and what they're working with.
1: Well, that's a great way of framing it as well. And it, it really sort of dovetails with, I would say, the last five years of research on complex grief. We're actually getting yep. a lot more information coming forward about, you know, you cannot cookie cutter understand the individual's experience of grief. I think maybe COVID has brought a lot of that to the surface. But now we're even diving deeper and drilling down in a one specific area that is so very complex that it really requires more observation and study.
0: It's so interesting because grief... People have been dealing with grief forever. It's just every human's experience. And just now, this latest version of the DSM finally addresses long standing complex grief yeah. for the first time. Yeah. So it's now codified for us to look at that. So that's how important it is to what, what you're bringing up.
1: Well, it's also, you know, as always, I want to always pull back to the idea of looking at it through a very holistic and I mean sort of holographic lens. I want to see the big picture and always it comes back to the marginalization of women. Yeah, and it reminds sure. me in this of reading one of those sort of aggregate articles, maybe like Factinate or something, where they went to Reddit and they pulled a bunch of posts from Reddit. And this was all examples of women talking about either family members or boyfriends. Usually, They're all males, basically. All males completely not understanding anything about the female anatomy or Reproductive system, and one even going so far as having an older male doctor going in and requesting, saying, "Hey, I need a referral for a gynecologist." And the doctor saying, "You had a hysterectomy. There's nothing down there. Why? Why would you need a oh. gynecologist?" And, and that's in 2022. You know, so that's oh, good like, Lord. on one hand, I have great admiration for the medical community. I really, really do. But you know, when the medical community is impaired by its own internalized misogyny and we got a problem. We got a big problem. So treatment, getting back on track. Sorry, thank you for my little TED talk there. But the treatment (laughs) for this sort of thing, if you can even get The client to engage in treatment is being aware of whether the symptoms that are being experienced of pseudosiesis is at the baseline. So clinicians, whether they're medical or mental or behavioral health, they need to know all of this as a possibility, like a full intake, like let's get all of the information. What's your medical history? What medications are you on? I need to know everything. And then even questioning further to maybe figure out if somebody has something going on that they're not aware of. So understand that the experience of a trauma and significant mourning is also appropriate. Like we're saying in the DSM, only now starting to understand complex grief.
0: Yeah, to get a full trauma history, because how is that perhaps relating to anything that has happened more recently. Also, denial is understood to be a major challenge in clients with varying levels of fixed beliefs, potentially about their pregnancy or experiencing a pregnancy, what they think is a pregnancy. And when we look at denial, that might be the reaction to... Either a miscarriage, a negative pregnancy mm. test. And so the clinician needs to be ready to sort of follow up with a standard set of procedures to evaluate pregnancy. And these would include making sure the client is getting all of the medical care and, you know, getting that ultrasound, getting the results back, bringing that into session to talk about these clear indications that the uterus is empty and the correct size for a non-pregnant individual, and then being able to sort of process that together in a safe space in therapy.
1: Right, and maybe a mental health clinician or someone who is a really caring and professional OBGYN or nurse practitioner that is going to sit down and have that step-by-step intimate conversation. When there's an opening that's been made because you've created a therapeutic alliance, then you might be able to push against that fixed belief and and thereby refute the pregnancy. So the clinician has to be ready to deal with more than the loss of hope. There is mourning in this process, which can be made more complex by the partner present who may be just as invested in the idea of pregnancy as the patient is. So if there is a spouse, a partner, a friend who has been on this ride along the way, they may very well be invested so highly that that sure. further impedes pushing against the delusion. Providing education to the partner and eliciting their support can then lead to the client being referred for therapy to address the underlying psychological issues that may have been at play. You know, in the more bizarre and extreme examples of this phenomenon, unaddressed and unexamined, unresolved issues could possibly result in a relapse of that false belief or the fantasy that the patient is pregnant again. Like any kind of mental health issue, certainly, you're not dealing with a bullet point, one and done treatment. It's not. It's got to be a treatment plan and it's got to be gentle and you've got to have therapeutic alliance.
0: Well, and especially in this case, because someone could say there's this major breakthrough for this delusion. The couple could still be trying to get pregnant, right? So, again, they could come to believe that they are now newly Pregnant, and that could kick it off all over again. So I could see this being just a chronic, chronic delusion. Well, (laughs) I don't know, you know, like them coming up again and again and again.
1: You know, my, when I've worked with a psychiatrist at the VA, it's been very interesting because there's a very high percentage of veterans. Who develop delusional disorder. And they may have had underlying genetics for delusional disorder or, you know, mild psychosis before they ever got in the military. But some of them, when they develop it, it, it can be really difficult to pull that apart. And the psychiatrist that I consulted with said that the the best hope that he has is creating enough relationship with the individual who's having the experience, getting their trust and getting them on light dose of a medication called Risperdal, Mm -hmm. mild antipsychotic. And it's been used across the board for a number of issues, not only psychosis or bipolar, but Risperdal, he said over a period of time, if they can keep them in the hospital for three to six weeks, that Risperdal can turn down the volume on the belief. Right. Even to the point where they go, yeah, I mean, I'm not completely convinced, but I can see that there are some doubts. Like they actually have okay. the insight. They can develop some insight and maybe it will resolve. Maybe if they're consistent with their medications, it'll resolve in a couple of years. But again, that's the VA that can keep people for longer. How are we going to do right. this in an outpatient setting? And our OBGYNs, do they feel competent prescribing antipsychotics? It's very complex. Well,
0: Maybe we'll hear, remember our listener that wrote in after we talked about bipolar and medications, wasn't she like a psychiatric mental health professional with expecting
1: mothers? She was the one that told us because I was under the mistaken belief that you couldn't give bipolar medications to an individual who was pregnant. And we were corrected very beautifully by that the newer medications are actually quite effective. So that's that's a great point. Please, if there's anything in here we need to be corrected on, reach out.
0: So due to the scarcity of the research on that note, there are no current recommendations regarding medication treatment um, for these, aside from what you talked about, of just delusions in general, looking at this specific sort of factors that we're focusing on today. In a few cases, patients have been prescribed medications that would stop their menstruation as well as reduce other hormone levels. So it's, yeah, interesting interesting territory here.
1: So, so yep. a great media example is the very successful television show Glee. And really yes. sort of like the first couple of episodes, there was uh-huh. the wife of the beloved fictional character, Mr. Schuster, who was the choir director. Her name was Terry, and she was beautifully and annoyingly played by Jessalyn Gilsig. Her character is really written to be not likable. Like, right. she's really designed to be not likable. And this actress does a great job. But... And in
0: contrast to him, because he's so likable. Right. I think that's super obvious. Yeah, Yeah,
1: clearly. And she experiences a false pregnancy. And then when that's discovered that it's not a legit pregnancy, she tries to adopt the child of Glee Club member Quinn Fabre, who was like, Mm -hmm. not really the mean girl, but the head cheerleader. She was like the blonde it girl. So that led to a very interesting arc within the television show. She said in an interview, Jessalyn said in an interview that She portrayed the character as emotionally about the age of a high schooler, which is really a fascinating choice, given that Mm. she has the false pregnancy, and then she thinks that she can just sort of fix her marriage by instantly adopting a child.
0: That's so interesting to me that she played it that way, because then I think like, well, so Mr. Schuster is now picking a partner that is the emotional age of a high schooler, and he's teaching in high school. Right. Hmm.
1: Mm. (laughs) Sometimes we overthink things.
0: I'm sorry. My mind just has to go that way. Sometimes a
1: banana is just a banana.
0: <laughs> okay, okay. There also exists a movie called Prego Land from 2014. I don't know why I find all the cheesy, like, B movies. This was but actually, like this...
1: straight to video, right? <laughs> Clearly. I
0: hope so. <laughs> but it stars James Caan, rest in peace, and Danny Trejo, as well as Sonia Bennett, whose character pretends to be pregnant to fit in with her friends. And she's like the crass, party friend, cool aunt. And like as part of this mom group where everyone's starting to get pregnant and settle down and she then sort of like spontaneously lies and says that she's pregnant to get sympathy and then ends up trying to keep up that farce to... um Her dad is James Caan and he's like very excited he's gonna be a grandpa and things like that. So I did not watch it. I don't know how it ends. I can't tell you. But yeah, there have been a couple movies out there.
1: So There was another one that is really, really funny that I just really, really love because it's it's a testament to the great friendship between Tina Fey and Amy Poehler who were both of Saturday Night Live fame where she plays a woman who can't get pregnant. So she Uh hires a surrogate with Amy Poehler playing a trash character. The movie's called baby mama. Very, right. very funny. Highly recommend it. So yeah, there's some interesting stuff out there. This is a <laughs> fascinating, fascinating subject, but I'm hopeful that if people have more research, since it's so scant, yep. please let us know because we would love to add that to our resource page if you yes. have any extra.
0: good stuff. Just one update. So when we're doing our live streams now, we are trying out a new platform. It is no longer on Get Vocal. I don't know. We have probably not corrected our outro on here yet. So that's why I just wanted to bring it up. If we have, then disregard. But so our live streams will be streaming on YouTube, definitely. And also trying to get it on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, although there have been some problems with the overlap of those live streams, but we're going to try and get it all worked out for our next one, which will be August 20th. And we're going to have Dr. John De Torre back for that episode. He's a forensic psychologist out of Texas. Brilliant, brilliant guy. And we've had him on before to talk about delusional beliefs actually so we got a new topic for you guys and we're just gonna have a little nerd out forensic psych chat with him and we hope you guys will join us just stay tuned to our social media because we'll keep you updated again it's always on saturdays always at that 4 p.m time slot it's just once a month now and there's we just kind of have to go by our schedule these days of which saturday it's going to be it's not a specific one so just that's why i say look at the social media for the info and with that, I'm going to pull out my chapstick, <laughs> and uh, I always have it in arm's length.
1: <laughs> okay. okay.
0: You don't know where I got it from, but it's no always within arms. Length.
1: <laughs> Gross. Thanks, Gross. folks. We really appreciate you tuning in for this longer episode on a very complex and fascinating issue. And we will see you next time on LA. Not so confidential. Bye, folks.
0: Bye bye sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Cross Space Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usry of Ear Cult Productions.
1: The LA Not-So-Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons attribution license. Please check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube.
0: All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at wwwla not so dash confidential.com you can find us on instagram at la not so podcast on twitter at la not so pod and on facebook at la not so confidential media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienist entertainment at gmail.com
1: please join us each month on saturdays at 4 p.m pacific standard time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on youtube entitled behind the couch. Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live stream scheduling announcements.
0: Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential so you never miss a new episode. Lastly, we would be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast so you can be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way.
1: Thanks for listening and join us next time on LA Not So Confidential.